There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Alan Rusbridge. I'm the editor at Prospect Magazine. And today I'm delighted to be joined by two excellent guests, seasoned political journalist and pollster Peter Kellner and political consultant and former head of political strategy for the Labour Party, Greg Cook, to talk about why the next election is Labour's to lose. And I can highly recommend Peter's piece on this subject in the current issue of the magazine, which is fascinating, if not entirely encouraging. And it's not entirely encouraging because Peter's broken down the numbers to work out how many votes Labour would need to win and and where they stand in comparison to Blair's 1997 landslide. So, Peter, if I can start with you, um, just talk us through some of these numbers. I mean, you, you compare how Labour is today, which seems on the face of it very encouraging, with uh, how they did in 1997 and 2005. And the the numbers that you crunched aren't as encouraging for Labour as I think the headlines suggest. That's right, Alan. Let me just pick out a couple of staging points that lead to this conclusion. The first is that that there is now a geographical bias in the Conservatives' favour. What I mean by this if you imagine both parties having exactly the same number of votes across the country, 12 or 13 billion each, well, you'd expect if it was an unbiased system, both would have the same number, roughly the same number of seats. Well, if that were to happen at the next election, they would be more conservative than Labour MPs. How many more? Depends on the precise assumptions about things like tactical voting, how well the Liberal Democrats do and so on. But they would be more conservative than Labour MPs. And the second as a thing to bear in mind, is imagine that we have a repeat of the vote shares from that Blair landslide 26 years ago. Labour then had a lead of 13, one, three percentage points in the popular vote. Well, if that were to be repeated today, then on the conventional assumption of, of the same sort of swing across the country, Labour would now crawl in just with an overall majority. I believe there would be some tactical voting as there was in that election, and that would push Labour's majority up to maybe 30 or 40, but nothing like the 179-seat majority it enjoyed under Tony Blair. Did these figures shock you, Greg, or are they more or less what you expected? No, I mean, that's it's a very, very steep mountain which Labour's had to climb, and that's been clear since 99. I mean, the 
if we take kind of historic benchmarks, and I think there's a limit to how much we should be bound by what's happened in previous elections because they each have unique circumstances. But nobody has ever got a swing, no party since 45 has ever got a swing of more than 7% in an election, with the exception of the 10% which Labour got in 97. And a 7% swing would probably be just about enough for Labour to get to become the largest party. And the 13% swing, which is basically what Peter's talking about, would take Labour to roughly what its vote shares were, what the vote shares were in 97, gets you a bare majority. And that's way beyond what Labour got in 97, what any party's ever got. Uh, and so, you know, until, um, you know, very, you know, the last three, four months, I think certainly if you'd asked me in private, I would have said that it was pretty inconceivable that there would even be a Labour-led government, let alone a majority. So, you know, it's a testament that we're even talking about it being possible as much as probable, the extent of the Tory collapse over the last four months, but the maths hasn't gone away. So e- even if you read these figures suggesting that Labour is 20% ahead, this doesn't really mean much in, in terms of the cold arithmetic of w- what happens when we get to an election. Well, it means, obviously, that the Tories are in very serious plight. And again, if we take if we go back to the 1990s and... That which you know, which is the last sustained period we had, where we've had where any party was in the lead for this for of that scale for that long. We should remember that lead broadly lasted right from 1994 until 2002, 2003. Labour has kept those leads up in even when in government. But what the history of that period shows was that the Tories found it impossible to stage any kind of significant recovery obviously they did a bit better in 97 or Labour did a bit worse than the polls were suggesting they would do but you know just having a stable indeed reasonably successful economy by 1997 wasn't enough for the Tories and it's not going we can probably take from that that's not going to be enough for Sunak either and so in that sense the focus does become on whether people are prepared to make that positive choice for Labour. Peter, in your piece, you give four reasons why the tide is so against Labour, and it boils down to Scotland, Wales, boundary changes, and then the unknown factor of tactical voting. Can you just unpack each one of those a bit? Yeah, yes, of course. In 1997, there were then, I think, 72 Scottish MPs. I mention that because the number has come, come down. And Labour won, I think, 56, Greg will correct me if I'm wrong, Anyway, the overwhelming preponderance of them in 97. And the last election, Labour had won. I think it's quite likely that Labour will get to six or seven. If they're really lucky and the SNP continue in trouble, as they seem to be at the moment, Labour might get up to 10 or a dozen. But a significant part of Labour's majority under Tony Blair was based on Scotland. That's gone. Wales, um, Labour remains the dominant party in Wales, but again, Wales has lost seats through boundary changes. Um, so in 1997, Labour had, uh, from memory, 36 out of 40. Well, there are only going to be 32 seats now from Wales. So Labour can't repeat its 97 performance. Best guess, Labour 27, 28 in Wales. So again, it's a lesser effect than Scotland, but it still hurts Labour. Boundary changes... Curiously, this is not as bad for Labour as it looked a few years ago. These boundary changes have been long delayed. They should have happened pretty well 10 years ago, but they got caught up with Tory plans to reduce the size of the House of Commons. Anyway, 
those boundary changes never happen. So we've had these long delayed boundary changes. And what normally happens with boundary changes is that the strong labor industrial and inner city areas that lose populations get end up with fewer seats and the suburban and rural parts where with expanding populations and overall generally Tory MPs, they get more seats. But this time it's complicated by the fact that the Tories did so well in the Reds wall seats. So some of these population shrinking seats are now Tory. They're not exclusively Labour. However, all that said, it looks as if if the everybody was to vote as they did in 2019 on the new boundaries rather than the old boundaries, the Tory majority, instead of being 80, would have been around 100. They'd have got around 10 more seats. Non-Tory parties would have got around 10 fewer seats. And so all these things you know, go into the mix. Now, the final point, which is potentially the most interesting, but at this point, the most speculative, is tactical voting. Now, back in the Blair landslide, the best estimates are that the Conservatives lost around 30 seats more than they would have done had it not been tactical voting. And those 30 went around 20 to Labour and around 10 to the Liberal Democrats, by which I mean people who would otherwise have voted Lib Dem voting Labour in, in Tory Labour marginal contests, otherwise Labour supporters voting Lib Dem in their target seats. Now, of course, that could make a big difference next time. I spent the last election three years ago, probably the most futile general election for me personally of the 10 or a dozen that I've in some way looked at as a journalist or bolster because I raised money to commission polling designed to help tactical voting. And there wasn't any. The polls were great. They were technically great, but they had no effect whatsoever. And this was because Lib Dems were reluctant to vote for a party led by Jeremy Corbyn. And do we remember the name of the Lib Dem? Ah, yes, Jo Swinson. She didn't exactly inspire many Labour voters. Now, logic and recent polling and by-election evidence suggests that tactical voting has returned. Think back to what, about six months ago, was it? The by-elections in, in Wakefield, a Labour target seat, and down in Tiverton and Honiton, down in, in, in Devon, a Lib Dem hopeful seats. Well, Labour gained a big swing in Wakefield. The Lib Dem vote collapsed. The Lib Dems had a huge upsurge of votes in, down in Devon. Labour votes collapsed. This, together with polling, suggests that Lib Dem and Labour voters are now up for some degree of tactical voting because they are united in their detestation of the Conservatives and they're no longer that wary as they were three years ago, the other non-Tory party. So I'm pretty sure tactical voting will come back. How big an effect it'll have? We'll wait and see. I think one could do no more at this stage and say, well, what if it's the same as in 1997, which I've, I've done in the chart for Prospect. I think that's a, that's a reasonable starting point. But what the end figure will be like, who knows? So for the readers who haven't got a copy of Prospect open in front of them, there, there's a fascinating chart which, is, which Peter's done himself, all his own work, which shows what the, the result would likely be with a uniform and swim and what it would be with tactical voting. And they're, they're, it would make quite a change. Greg, Greg with your Labour Party hat on, um, if you still have a Labour Party hat, you must have someone in your cupboard somewhere. You must be quite conflicted over this because on the one hand, tactical voting could make a huge difference to the next result. On the other hand, it seems de rigueur that 
nobody can publicly come out and in favor of it. Uh, so if you're working for the Labour Party, how do you, with a sort of nudge and a wink, indicate to people that, that this is a good thing to do without actually saying it? Um, I take a slightly heretical view about uh, tactical voting, uh, and I do part company a little bit from uh, Peter on this. Uh, we tend to think of it, you know, when the term is used, uh, we do tend to think of it in terms of, you know, these you know, committed or semi-committed party voters, Labour and the Lib Dems, normally sometimes the Greens are pulled into it as well, sort of sitting down and making a calculating choice uh, and voting for a lower preference party in order to beat the Tories. I suspect actually very, very little of that goes on. You know, the reasons why people choose the Lib Dems and Labour in different parts of the country, different constituencies are much more kind of nuanced and complex than that, I think. And specifically on the 1997 point, my view is that actually it was a low point of tactical voting. I disagree completely with John Curtis's interpretation of what happened in that election because if that had been a significant factor amongst the way in the way that the votes distributed, I don't see why you would have had the dozen seats or so which Labour won from third place, and which you know we had new boundaries in that, so we were dealing with notional results. But even so, these were seats where there was absolutely no doubt the Lib Dems were in second, and that included places like Bristol West and St Albans where you would expect that people who would be making tactical choices would be concentrated and some like Hastings where it was spectacular Labour was nowhere and got a swing of nearly 20% to win it so that's not to say there, there isn't some of that going on but I think actually there was a proportionally more of it in 2001 when those seats had been won and when people could see who their new MP was and which party to vote for but you know in a sense that's a kind of esoteric point but I think that we're in a different situation now not least because the Lib Dems are on about nine percent in the polls which is half of what they were in 1997 there just aren't that many Lib Dems let alone kind of committed Lib Dems around to distribute and they're in a different political position they're much more firmly now a left-wing party which may complicate their ability to attract Tory voters and in terms of specific seats the way this can matter, most of the ones where it could be really important in making a difference are actually quite contentious. So what do you say in cities of London and Westminster or Finchley and Golders Green or new three-way marginal seats like Early and Woodley and Reading where the Lib Dems are in second place or Hitchin where clearly it would be part of a Labour coalition but the, the Lib Dems are not going to stand aside there. So I think, I, I think conscious tactical voting is not going to play a huge part. But if by tactical voting we mean Labour's vote becoming more efficient, I think that's, that, is a, that is a really significant factor because if you get to a swing, which is anything like Labour actually being in a position to form a government, 10% or more, inevitably that is going to be very varied in different parts of the country because Labour can't get a 10% swing in much of Merseyside because it would be up to nearly 100% of the vote, for example, or parts of London. So the swing would be less there, which means it would be more in other places. And the and so what Labour really needs is to get that bigger swing in the places which are a little which require a little bit more of a push to win. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, huge clusters of places in Brexit voting Britain which voted Labour in 2005 and which now require swings of more than 15% across the Midlands in particular North Kent and so on so if by tactical voting we mean that people are switching to Labour more in those areas 
and moving out to Labour voters moving away proportionally from these new heartlands has in London and the northwest conurbations, then that obviously makes Labour's task an awful lot easier and in the long term of you know building a, a more sustainable kind of coalition. One kind of coda to that is one place where I think tactical conscious tactical voting could be very important is Scotland. And we are, you know, we've seen in recent elections and uh, polls some evidence of uh, anti-SNP tactical voting by Tories. And there are now, in 2019, quite a significant number of Tory voters in Glasgow and the seats and around which are Labour's best prospects for gains. And, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of uh, conscious tactical voting by them could give Labour that foothold to you know, win seats from the nationalists, which I think politically and electorally they need. Can I just say, I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't really disagree um, with Greg, because I think statistically, as well, it doesn't make that much difference whether it's firm Lib Dems switching Labour or vice versa, or simply people who are anti-Tory saying, around here, which party do I vote for in order to get rid of um, the Tories? And I'm sure in 1997 it was that. But the problem with... 2019 was that not many people were asking themselves that question, principally because of Jeremy Corbyn. Well, that fact has gone away. So I think it's all happened. But the other point I'd make is that, that in 1997, I've not got to the bottom of all of this, but I know of some cases where there are quite explicit local arrangements. I'll give you one example, which was the Lewis in Sussex, which was a Lib Dem target, and Hove, what, six or seven miles away, which was a Labour target. The local Lib Dem and Labour people did an explicit deal that all the Labour members in Lewis would work in Hove and all the Lib Dem members in Hove would work in Lewis and they would simply put up nominal candidates in, in these seats and it worked. The Tories lost both seats. So so you might get either explicit agreements or or in any case, you know, Labour isn't going to put a lot of effort into seats where it's miles behind the Lib Dems and the Lib Dems are going to concentrate their efforts on their target seats. So simply the weight of campaigning might help to induce that efficient anti-Tory voting. So we've established by crunching the numbers, which is always uh, eye-wateringly fascinating listening to people who understand them, that uh, Labour has a mountain to climb. So the next question, and I'll turn to you, Greg, first, is Labour there? I mean, have they done enough, in your opinion, to win? Um, I think the answer is we don't know. We, we won't know almost literally until the votes are counted, I suspect, because I think the... Um, Although the you know there's a cephalogical mountain from Labour's point of view, I wouldn't be too hung up about that because you know these these aren't laws. Um, you know we've had twenty odd elections since 1945. It's not a it's not a science, uh, and Labour, nobody had ever got a ten percent swing before 97. There's absolutely no reason logically and politically why why Labour can't surmount that that kind of mountain. You know the Tories won over made over a hundred gains in 2010 from a much weaker kind of swing. The other thing we have to bear in mind, I think, is that the polls with 97 are limited by the fact that the behaviour of the electorate now in general, I think, is different. It's a different sort of electorate. We've had three decades of further kind of breakdowns of tribal party loyalties. We've had, in fact, a transformation of probably both parties, what you might now term their core votes and Labour's collapse in the industrial and coal feed areas and the, the Tories' new uh, strength in them over the last few years. So all of that is is very different. But we've also had this 
phenomenon of not volatility, I think, but fibrility, if that's a word, of the electorate, which we've seen, which which we're experiencing at the moment. You know, we're going through now an extended period where um, we've we've seen a major short term turnaround in people's um, voting intention. The first kind of example, I think, you know, which sort of started this trend was back with the fuel protests in 2000, which was for just for a week or so. There was the Labour vote. The Tories came neck and neck, having been 10, 20 percent behind for most of that period. That kind of rebalanced itself. We then had Clegmania during the 2010 election. We had the rise of Corbyn through the 2017 election campaign. We've had various examples. We had the collapse of the two major parties' votes after the Article 50 being rescinded in 2019 and very violent shifts in public opinion. And so that, to me, means that all those kinds of shifts are now possible in a way that the kind of more steady changes which we saw in 1997, the period before 1997, didn't reflect. And so that... That works both ways. It means, to my mind, it's possible for the Tories to recover even to a position where they could form another majority just about the next election, maybe even just during the campaign. But it also makes it possible for Labour to surmount these huge challenges. So it's much more a political... Lots of listeners hearing that will be astonished. I mean, it's difficult to think of what more the Tory government could have done to prove itself to be incompetent over the last five years. So it, it it feels like a terrible condemnation of the Starmer Labour Party that 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 they, even understanding all the numbers that they haven't clearly positioned themselves. And a common view amongst commentators is that although the voters have decided that the Tories are incompetent and and don't want to vote for them, they don't yet feel inspired by the Labour Party that Starmer is offering. Well, I think it's undoubted they don't feel inspired. The polls would suggest that. I mean, Keir's ratings, the party's ratings have obviously increased significantly over the last four months. But I think inspiration is not the word you necessarily derive from that. And it may well be, it's probably on balance likeliest that the Tories have just gone too far. They're too discredited now to recover to, certainly to a winning position by the time of the next election. But I go back to the fact that Labour's, the foundations which have been built by Labour are still pretty shallow. Its performance in elections and in polls up to and even including May this year was barely adequate for a, for a, an opposition party, let alone one which needs to climb this electoral mountain. Now it's going through a phase where it's clearly benefiting uh, from the Tories malaise and part of that process is that the, the Lib Dems voting vote share the Greens has gone down a little bit over the last few months so people are kind of getting behind Labour as an alternative government I think there's less clear evidence you know if we take for example the parliamentary by-elections which we've had that they are attracting the direct switches from the Tories which they need but the one thing about this election again which is a bit different from 97 is that it's got to be done almost entirely from switches from the Tories and there has been an increase I think the YouGov figures it's gone up from about 8% of 2019 to 12% in the raw figures of Tory voters switching direct to Labour that's nothing like enough by itself for Labour even to be the largest party and so I think we need more evidence that people are actually making that, that crossing the Rubicon. So, Peter, wh- wh- why, in your view, is Labour not 
doing well enough? Um, if I knew the definite answer to that, and I, and I think Greg's right, the degree of volatility, of febrile nature of the electorates means that you know, we could be, what, 21 months away if it's an autumn election next year from, from the election, and an awful lot could happen. But I will come to your question, if I may, as well, indirectly, Alan, because I think the first point I make, where I think I have a, I have a slightly firmer view than Greg, is I think that the, the Tories are in the kind of mess from which a complete recovery to them winning outright, absent some completely unexpected cataclysmic event, I, I think that's pretty remote. I think people have, most people have, or enough people have made up their minds that they're no longer going to vote Tory. I can't see the Tory party staying in government. And part of that is because, as I you know, argue in my, my article for Prospect, there will be a Labour government, a Labour-led government with Keir Summers Prime Minister. It could be even with the Tories as the largest party um, because the Tories... Because the only potential allies they have are the uh, DUP from Northern Ireland, and there are, well, there'll be six, seven, eight of them at the next election. So the Tories need to get in the region of 315 seats out of a 650 House of Commons to have any chance of, of, of getting a King's speech through Parliament. Uh, so you could, let's, this is not a prediction, but as a, a for instance, if for instance you have the Tories on 300 seats, Labour on 260, and then Lib Dem, Scott Nats, Northern Ireland, and so on, the other 90, Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister, a bit like Ramsay MacDonald did in 1924, Labour's first government when Labour was the second largest party. So the, 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 the key winning post of the Tories is not that they're the largest party, but that they get really very close to an absolute majority. I think that's really unlikely. However, I, you know, I, I agree with Greg that not only statistically but politically, um, Labour faces a problem in getting to an overall majority, and this is, you know, this is, um, I mean, plainly part of this is there isn't the excitement, there isn't the enthusiasm, there isn't that sort of positive vibe around Labour that there was in the run up to 1997 with with Tony Blair, and you can see this Tony Blair's own popularity ratings in polls between him becoming party leader in 95 and the election in 97. And he was getting 50, 60, 65% positive approval ratings. Keir Starmer is lucky if he breaks even, if it's sort of 38, 38, approve, disapprove. He's getting nowhere near where Tony Blair is. And I think this is not, it's partly about him. He has a certain style, which is, that's what he is. But I think it's partly because there is a degree of political caution about what they're offering for Britain's future. So he's relying on, and he may rely successfully on, A, dislike of the Tories, and B, a yearning for quiet, competent, honest, public-spirited government, all of which I think Keir Starmer can offer and can persuade people that can offer. And perhaps he's making the judgment that if he gets those two things uh, right and keeps those th two things uh, where they are now, um, anti-Tory and wanting a reasonable, honest, public-spirited government, that will be enough. Well, I think it may well be enough to get him to be Prime Minister, but quite possibly in a hung parliament. Um, and I agree with Greg that if you add the political challenge to the statistical challenge, um, he would do extremely well to get a clear working overall majority. 
So, Greg, you, you've worked at the, at the heart of political operations. And do, 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 does this sort of conversation that we've been having explain what seems to many people to be Keir's, uh, it would be cruel to call it timidity, but his, his caution? So, for instance, there must be lots of Labour voters who would like to see a more full-throated backing of the action by you know many public sector workers now, um, and and Labour seems to be um, sitting on the fence or or very muted in its in, in its response. Is this because actually in the heart of it, the plan is just not to alienate people, not to piss people off, um, because they realise that actually they're they're walking on a knife edge. Yes, I think. Uh, it- my kind of reading from the outside of of the strategy is that it is very much from the playbook of pre-1997 politically and indeed from you know which which itself is effectively what Cameron Cameron and Osborne were doing prior to 2010 as well which is about reassurance based on the recognition that you've got to get a lot of people who voted Tory in 2019 and emphatically rejected Labour in that election to switch to them so you know that's why we're seeing the the emphasis you know which is uh, again a direct mirror of 97 on costing everything on having um you know simple pledges which balanced with by being paid for by you know getting rid of something unpleasant which everybody disagrees with nothing too contentious and steering well clear of things like the industrial relations issues you you mentioned and so on as things which might frighten the horses i think the difference the big difference is that the nature of the party which Keir had to work with to get himself elected in the first place his judgment i think probably a correct one was that he basically had to sign up to a lot of the Corbyn agenda with his pledges, which he made in in that leadership election. Although I suspect that virtually none of them will make a, make it into the manifesto. The fact is that it, that that does inhibit him from presenting himself in the way that Blair and Brown did, emphatically a chain a, a party of change, and not only change for the country, but change from what the Labour Party was before. Um, and that may be fine, you know, that may maybe the Tories are so discredited that the, the country does come round to uh, saying, well, Labour couldn't be any worse, uh, even if it's not particularly enthusiastic about it. But there's the equal danger that Labour comes across as being the I told you so party, which is a, not a good place to be in with the electorate. And this is why I think we have to kind of use our imagination a bit to look forward to where we're going to be in a year's time. And I do think, I have to say, I think Sunak is a much stronger proposition for the Tories than Johnson would have been. I think he would have been quite tired by the time of the next election. And the the whole would come down, uh, you know, for example, a big factor in this election is going to be what happens in those in the red wall. And uh, the, you know, I, like many others, went up to, you know, Durham and Yorkshire and Northumberland and did focus groups in early 2020 to speak to these voters who had switched. And what struck me about it was, was, you know, just their complete rejection of the Corbyn agenda, the spending agenda and so on, but their comfort with having switched to the Tories. You know, it was almost like a sense of relief, which they felt. And I suspect, actually, that the the Sunak kind of, um, you know, common sense kind of middle of the road type kind of Toryism, fiscal prudence type of Toryism, which he's clearly trying to resurrect, may be more attractive to them in the long run than than the Johnson type Tories. Can I just build on what, what Greg has said? And, and if one is trying to, as we're understanding in a sympathetic way, Keir Starmer's 
dilemma and perhaps part of the reason for his caution is that the Greg's mentioned the Red Wall voters used to vote Labour, voted for Brexit, and that was part of their process of rejecting Labour. But Labour also needs to hold on to and preferably add to the small L liberal progressive graduate metropolitan pro-European voters. So when you look at what does Labour say about Brexit to the EU, immigration, issues like that, it's trying to th thread a needle which um, in a way that appeals both to these pro-Brexit voters in the Red Wall seats it's lost, but also holds on in other marginal seats, other target seats, to voters who might, if they're strongly green-minded, European-minded, metropolitan, pro-immigration, well, they've got the Liberal Democrats and the Greens to vote for. And if you think of these kinds of, the, the younger graduates, people who've never been tribally Labour, and who don't any, have any, as it were, strong historic loyalty to the Labour Party, then you could see a number of them flaking off to the Lib Dems, the Greens. So I think Keir Starmer, one can have an argument or a discussion about how you solve that, but it is a very real dilemma. That is, I call them Jenny and Joe. Jenny, young progressive graduate, Joe, older manual worker, left school at 16, voted for Brexit. How does Keir Starmer appeal to Jenny in one group of target seats and Joe in another group of target seats. It's not an easy challenge. Yes, I think it's, you know, it's obviously partly about policy as well. But I think the other another aspect of the Red Wall is that these voters are very conscious that they're part of the Red Wall and they're, you know, they're special and a kind of attention is on them. One of the phenomena, the startling phenomena we saw in 2019 was that the first wave of Red Wall losses from 2017, half a dozen seats which Labour actually lost to the Tories in the in that election, saw amongst the biggest further swings to the Tories in the country. So the Warsaw Norths, the North East Derbyshires, Mansfields now have Tory majorities of 15, 16%. It was like a, uh, you know, sorry, about of, of 25, 30%. And they did swings of 15, 16%. It was like a dam had broken once psychologically people had got over that, you know, years of habitual voting and, uh, you know, as the people in the focus groups, which I did and which I'm sure many others did, so they felt comfortable in doing it. They, they felt them, they, their ancestors might turn in their graves, but they felt comfortable doing it. Greg, do you think there's a there's a sophomore effect at work? This is where where some where a, a, a new MP wins a seat, gained from another party. You know, historically, as a general rule, of the next election when they first come back for re-election, they often do quite well because they picked up some degree of personal following. So I wonder, A, whether these extra swings in 2019 in the Mansfields and Walsalls was partly a sophomore effect. And if it is, could it be that Labour's hopes of winning huge numbers of votes back, or winning huge numbers of seats back from the Reds' wall, they might be to some extent impeded by all these new Tory MPs getting a sophomore effect hold on to their votes, which they might otherwise lose. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think there are all sorts of reasons. For, you know, if a Tory MP wins in a seat which, for example, has had no Tory councillors, of which there are several in 2019, there's an organisational effect because they're, you know, they're drawing people to them. They stand candidates. They kind of build a machine. Um, so all of that happens. 
Um, and, you know, there's the, but the incumbency effect, which those 2017 gains got was off the scale of anything we've seen ever before. And I, I think there's psychology there as well. And this is, I think, the, the danger for Labour in those seats, that actually the idea that those voters having taken that big step in 2019 are going to want to go straight back to, to a Labour which hasn't actually outwardly said that it's changed from 2019 or conceded that anything it said or did which drove them away at that time was wrong might be quite a step for them. And, and one other slightly more frivolous point is one rule of thumb which I have, uh, which is more or less held, I think, still is that in an election between a reasonably upbeat, naturally smiley type of leader and a reasonably doer, whingy type leader, the upbeat, smiley leader will always win. Uh, and that's pretty much held good. I think possibly 1979 might be the only case where it might have uh, worked against that. And I think uh, Keir's danger of, you know, um, not being a change, you know, of being, you know, a bit door, a bit whingy, a bit legal, decent, honest and truthful, which is good, but not really inspiring is that it makes it much harder for those people to say we were justified in what we did in 2019. But we're justified in going back to Labour now. So let me let me take both of you a, a, a year from now, i.e. sort of a year off the likely election. Um, the gap has closed a bit. You've got two technocrats leading each party. Memories of Tory sleaze and incompetence are fading a bit. Uh, we, we've gone through the mass. That's not looking great. Um, start with you, Greg. <laughs> What do you say to Keir? I mean, he's boxed himself in, hasn't he? Because he can't suddenly become a, a great smiley figure. He can't start um, promising to spend money because that's not the, the brand that he's built. Uh, can he change or, or is he is he just boxed into the, 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 the persona that he's got already? No, he is what he is. And I don't think you could kind of be what you aren't. Uh, you probably never could be, but certainly in the day, you know, the, under the kind of scrutiny that any politician is under now. And I think he, you know, for all his kind of want of a lack of term, lack of political charisma, he, his, his strengths are considerable. If, you know, in the polls, he rates very well on, um, on being more honest than most politicians, on being decent. Uh, he's clearly competent. He looks like a leader. And these are big assets. I think, uh, my kind of advice, you know, from from here onwards, and I think he's you know probably been doing it already, is just to act, you know, act as though you are going to be the next prime minister and and be authentic in what you want to do and what you want to say, um, but also kind of think big thoughts and think about, uh, you know, big issues. For example, Scotland, which we haven't talked about much. I think, you know, he's taken a very very strong line that he's going to have nothing to do with the SNP. He needs to make perhaps that more of a centrepiece for electoral and political reasons in Scotland, but also, you know, as a potential future prime minister and how he's going to deal with this, you know, ongoing issue about nationalism in Scotland and the state of the union, for example. But also I would say he maybe needs to be a bit, little bit more kind of upfront in challenging his party about some of the things, some of the comfort zone things, particularly it's, desire for you know big sums of money being spent on everything and that being the solution to stuff a little bit tougher on that but I think you know he's got considerable strengths which will work through and will probably be successful in the end. And Peter the same question a year year from now? Um, I agree with much of what Greg has said so let me just add um, an, an extra element clearly the, the political story of Britain for the last 10 or 15 years has been a story of culture wars invading politics 
elections, Brexit referendum, Scottish independence, and so on. Um, and in the cultural wars issues, which are essentially around Brexit and immigration, um, Labour will lose if it fights it as a cultural issue. It can win if it fights them as economic and social issues. So that um, if immigration is keeping people out, um, then Labour loses. If immigration has fought as well, we need our fruit picked, we need waiters in our restaurants, we need nurses in our health service, um, then I think it can win. Equally on, on Europe, um, there is, it seems to me, plainly um, an economic agenda which starts to reverse the big economic losses from us being outside the single market and the customs union. So even if he carries on saying, I suppose he has to now, because he said it so many times, that, Brit that Britain won't rejoin the single market or the customs union. If we can get back into um, more or less friction-free trade, which means accepting European standards on goods, on the environment, on workers' rights, on food, things which nobody, hardly anybody in Britain wants us to diverge from European standards. So if we can fight on things like that, issues which over the last 10 years have helped the Tories, I think they can be reclaimed as economic and social battles. I think we ought to put a date in our diary for a year's time and come back and um, uh, and see how much we've talked about today uh, has come true. Well, thank you both so much, Peter and Greg, for, for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you've enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber, grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine or go to the subscription.prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk to subscribe. In the issue currently on the streets, you'll find Peter's fascinating piece. There's a great piece by the great climate expert Bill McKibben on what Joe Biden's been doing in America with a little sidebar by Ed Miliband on how Labour may well steal some of those ideas. We've got the political satirist Rosie Holt. We've got a fascinating piece on Saudi Arabia and the plan to build a, a dystopian city in the desert. And the cover story is a fascinating piece by Jonathan Powell, who helped bring peace to Northern Ireland, talking about what the eventual negotiations in the Ukraine are likely to look at. So lots to read. Stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect podcast next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.